0: Well, good morning, Skycrest family. I'm so grateful that you have joined us this morning to study God's Word. Before we get started today, I, I want us to pray together. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together virtually today. We know, Lord, when we gather in your name that we enjoy the presence of your Spirit. So, Father, even though we're separated by space, I pray that you would unite us in heart and mind, around your word. And so Lord, with David, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. And Lord, as we understand your truth, I pray that we would be transformed by it. It's in the strong name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. You guys know what today is, right? It's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And that entrance signaled that Jesus was actually going public with his messianic identity, but the scripture reveals that the triumph of peace that everyone anticipated would ultimately be won through apparent defeat at the cross and no one was ready for that. Though they misunderstood the meaning of triumph from Jesus' perspective, the Jews had been waiting for this moment for better than 500 years dating all the way back to a prophecy by Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your King comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So on the day of Jesus' entry, He actually fulfills this prophecy. But to really understand the magnitude of His entry, we need to recognize exactly what was going on in the city of Jerusalem. Now the entry takes place during the Passover celebration, which was a week-long festival where the Jews celebrated what God had done during the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. See, the Passover actually referred to the last of the ten plagues that were poured out on Egypt in an attempt to compel Pharaoh to let God's people go. And that tenth and final plague obviously was the most devastating as the death angel swept over the entire nation Of Egypt taking the lives of every firstborn male in each household. But as the name suggests, the death angel literally passed over the Israelite households that followed God's instructions for salvation, which was to cover their door frames with the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed. Now, their last supper in Egypt was a feast in faith, because they anticipated both deliverance from the death angel and from Egyptian slavery. And so from that night forward, Jews annually celebrated the Passover. And then when the temple was constructed in Jerusalem, that celebration was centralized as Jewish pilgrims came from all over the world to the holy city where they would spend a week celebrating the Passover. Now, in Jesus' day, as he entered the city, there were between 30,000 and 50,000 residents in Jerusalem. But during the Passover, that number actually swelled to four times that many people. And so all those people, up to 200,000, were crammed into Jerusalem's walls. So when Jesus triumphantly entered the city, it was thick with people And with anticipation that Zechariah's prophecy would finally come to pass with the Messiah delivering them from Roman oppression. Now, this particular celebration, there were actually three distinct groups that were agitated with anticipation. First, there were the Romans, and they were on high alert in case of an uprising. They wanted to maintain strict military control in the city, especially with all those people. So they infused the city with extra troops to quash any hint of insurrection. The second group that were agitated were the spiritual leaders because they wanted desperately to preserve civil peace. The Passover, for them, surprisingly, had become much more than than a spiritual celebration. By this time, the throngs of people that came to the city actually brought money and lots of it. It was money they wanted to keep for themselves. And they knew if there was any hint of civil unrest, the Romans would shut them down. So they needed to keep the peace so they could keep the money rolling in. And finally, there was the rank and file among the Jews. They were actually looking for a king like David to lead that final great exodus, ridding them of Roman occupation and restoring the splendor and the glory of Israel, just as it was when David was king in their golden age. So they anticipated the Passover celebration to be the time that God would do it again, but this time not delivering them from slavery in Egypt, but delivering them from slavery to Rome. And so it's in this, into this combustible cauldron of tension that Jesus comes riding on a donkey just as Zechariah prophesied. To the Romans, it was trouble. To the spiritual leaders, it was a threat. And to the rank and file, it was a triumph. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and we're actually going to read the triumphal entry as Luke records it. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Now the meaning that Jesus attaches to his triumphal entry is quite different from the meaning that those Jews assigned to it. Predictably, their interpretation of the event was filtered through their hopes and desires. They actually had an agenda. They desperately wanted out of this cycle of civil despair, so now Jesus who had their attention, but never their allegiance, is seen riding into town on a donkey. And the light comes on. They said, hey, he's done miracles before. Maybe, maybe this Jesus is the one. Maybe he's the one sent by God to deliver us. And so suddenly the crowds that had never been attached to Jesus attach themselves to Him and go all in. Now they want this carpenter for a king. And their cries are for Jesus to fix their problems and fix them now. This is made clear by the shouts and praises that are recorded in the book of Mark. Here's what he says the crowd shouted in Mark 11, 9 and 10. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Those shouts were exuberant praises to God because they saw in Jesus the fulfillment of a prophecy that they had been waiting on for five years years. It was unfolding before their very eyes. That They saw Jesus as the leader and they were ready to join his movement. So they cried out, Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? Save now. They looked at Jesus and said, save us now, Hosanna. But here's the interesting thing about their idea of this salvation. They believed they had a part to play. They actually thought that they had to fight for freedom with Jesus. See, peace they knew would come through bloodshed. Not Jesus' blood, but certainly the Romans' blood and maybe even some of theirs. But but with as many as 200,000 Jews in the city, they knew they had the manpower, they knew they had the muscle, and now they believed they had the Messiah to pull it off. It was going to be David against Goliath, but this time the crowds would fight with David to bring down Goliath. Now the Pharisees knew that that's exactly what those disciples were thinking. And they stopped Jesus and said, look, you're going to have to talk some sense into them. In verse 39, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, they didn't want the crowds whipped into a frenzy. They wanted the Messiah, I think, but they knew it wasn't going to be Jesus. See, in their minds, Jesus was nothing but an uneducated rebel rouser, and they didn't need him getting the crowds all worked up into a frenzy unnecessarily. They had never believed in Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of his ministry, when he was working miracles and people were being drawn into his ministry, they were plotting to kill him. And their resistance wasn't so much for spiritual reasons as it was for practical reasons. Jesus was an outspoken opponent of their leadership. And they knew that if his teaching and his movement took root among the people, they would ultimately lose all their power. And that was simply not a price they were willing to pay, even even if it was accomplished, and freedom from Rome came with it. So they instructed Jesus to rebuke the disciples, shut them down before things got out of control and Rome actually ended the Passover party. Now, let's step back from the scene for a moment and examine their motivations. Both groups were highly motivated And and it's important for us to look closely at their motivations, what what was driving them, because now, even 2,000 years later, when it comes to Jesus, we're often driven by some of these same motives. The crowd, when they turned to Jesus, they turned to Him wanting what they wanted immediately. They believed Jesus could make their dreams come true, And, by the way, they believed they deserved it. So they said, Hosanna! Save now! Save us now! And then there were the religious leaders. What did they want? They actually wanted to maintain the status quo. What they really wanted was to keep what they had. Now... What's particularly pathetic about them is that they were the ones whose responsibility it was to point people to God. They were supposed to call the people to pray and seek God's face for deliverance and pray for the coming of the Messiah. They were supposed to be the ones who died to themselves and and give everything they had to God's kingdom. But along the way, they lost sight of their responsibilities because they had fallen in love with their roles. See, they enjoyed the power and the prestige and the privilege of the office of leader, but they had no interest in paying the price of leadership. They just wanted to keep things the way they were. Sure, they knew, everybody knew, they were technically enslaved by Rome. But all things considered, for these guys, life was actually pretty good. They they had built and were maintaining their own kingdoms. Interestingly, under the pseudonym of God's kingdom... But it was theirs, they controlled things, they held the power, they made the decisions. And that was a life they weren't anxious to let go of for any reason or for any cause. So let's think about those two groups. They both came to Jesus interested in Jesus serving their agenda. And both would be sorely disappointed. Now, was Jesus the Messiah? Yes. Did Jesus come to solve their problems? Absolutely. He would ultimately solve their problems. But as it turned out, they didn't like his solutions. See, the people who lined the streets thought Jesus would speak like a prophet, predicting better days ahead, kind of the I have a dream speech idea. But instead, this prophet, this Messiah who came triumphantly into the city, spoke about judgment to come. And the reason was because they rejected the price of peace. Look back at Luke 19 beginning in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it's hidden from your eyes. Now you don't see it. You can't see it because you're only looking out for your needs. And so he says the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They were going to get exactly what they hoped Jesus would deliver them from because they were rejecting Jesus on His terms. See, the people wanted a Messiah who would be politically enthroned in the kingdom of David. But Jesus came and would be physically impelled on a pagan cross. They wanted to be rescued from the evils of exploitation and oppression. But Jesus was going to rescue them from evil. But it was the evil that had a hold of their hearts. And just as a lamb had to be sacrificed in the first Passover to accomplish their deliverance, a lamb had to be sacrificed in this one too. Only this time, he was that lamb. The very Messiah that they pictured ascending the throne had to die. Something else changed this time that they never anticipated as the Lamb of God, He was sent to take away the sin within them, not the evil around them. See, in in Jesus, God was actually orchestrating the great exodus. But it was the exodus from their slavery to sin and death, the eternal effects of sin. And when He died at the cross, He gave every one of them what they needed, but not what they wanted. His death would bring them peace. His death would bring them peace, not the death of the Romans. So when we come to the triumphal entry today, I think we need to understand that we are all of us in this scene. With the crowds of his day, we shout Hosanna. We shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We recognize that Jesus is King, the King who brings salvation. But what are our motives? Do we want Him to save us from our trouble? Do we want Him to save our status and our stuff? Or do we want Him to save us from our sin? Like the crowd, some of us shout Hosanna because we want relief from our problems and we want it now. Pay my bills in hurry. Heal us from illness and do it right away. Take away COVID-19. Give me a job tomorrow. Fix my marriage. Heal my relationships. Help now. Save now. And look, here's the truth. Good news. Jesus wants to solve those problems. Jesus wants to answer those prayers. They are a byproduct of sin and evil in the world we live in. The sick Need a good doctor, the sheep need a good shepherd. And he came to solve those problems, certainly. But those problems are secondary. The first problem that he solves is the problem of our sin and separation from God, our Heavenly Father. And while he will heal all. Diseases and wipe away every tear. That guarantee is for the kingdom to come. First, his kingdom needs to come within us. Then, working through us, his kingdom can come around us. When you come to Jesus, are you demanding that he save you now? That he fix your problems now? Or are you trusting that his agenda is better than your agenda? The second group that we congregate in is kind of like the spiritual leaders because we're. Looking to Jesus to be sure that we can keep what we have. We want the benefits of the Messiah. We certainly want the kingdom of God to come around us. We appreciate the ideas of freedom and peace. But not at too high of a cost. See, we're the ones who built the good life for ourselves or we're in the process of building one. And so, like the religious leaders, we we want freedom, but we want it our way. We want it on our terms. And certainly not at the expense of our kingdoms. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll take the benefits of a Messiah, but we're not really interested in paying a price. In letting go of our kingdoms so that we can fully embrace his. Now, when you think about those two groups, we discover that they essentially have the same problem. They want a king on their terms, one that meets their expectations. But here's what we learn from Jesus. The King of Kings calls his own shots. He establishes peace for all in his time on his terms. He did things his way because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And none of us come to the Father. None of us enter his kingdom except By his way. And so, if we want to be a part of his kingdom, if we want his peace, then we come on his terms. It's not about joining the fight, it's not about what we have to do to secure God's kingdom around us or to earn our way onto his team. It's about what he did we we may not be able to conceive of a God of a king who would die for us that we could have life but that's why he came those were his terms he did it in love it's the finished work of grace and he says if you want to be a part of my kingdom then you have to let go of your agenda. You have to drop all of your expectations and cling to Him. Trust the work that He did at the cross. So, the lesson we learn from the triumphal entry is that whatever we're holding on to, we have to let it go. And we have to cling to His finished work at the cross because it was actually His death that led to the triumph of peace. He is the Prince of Peace and through Him we have access to His kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that Jesus submitted to your will, that he fulfilled your scriptures, and that he gave up himself so that we could have peace. Lord, sometimes we mix up the idea of triumph in your kingdom we forget that it requires death. It required the death of your son and it calls for the death of ourselves. So I pray, Lord, that we would each enter the way that Jesus made, that we would trust his death on the cross, that we would realize his forgiveness for our sins and we would live in peace. Father, for any of those that are watching today that don't believe in Jesus, that haven't trusted His finished work at the cross, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. And for those of us, Lord, who recognize that You are Messiah, I pray that we would let You be King. Give us wisdom. Give us the courage to follow our Prince of Peace. It's in the strong name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. I am looking forward to celebrating Easter with you next week. Unfortunately, it looks like we will be doing it virtually, but you know what, that's a celebration uh, that no amount of distance can silence. I am looking forward to celebrating our resurrected King next week. And I'll see you Wednesday night from our study as we continue studying uh, the great stories of faith from the book of Daniel. Have a great day. God bless.